So our topic this week, out of Genesis chapter 14, Abraham saves or Abraham delivers Lot. Starting verse 1, it came to pass in the days of a whole bunch of kings that they made war with a whole bunch of other kings. So there are four kings on one side and five kings on another. I'm not going to try and pronounce all those guys. Um, but I'm going to, so the one group will, are on the side of this Chedolomer, and uh, the other group is with Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, I'm just going to name the one team, the Cheddar team, and for short, and, uh, and the Sodom and Gomorrah team on the other side. A little background, so in the days of these kings, they had a battle. And all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So it's a little short verse, but there's uh, a bunch here to, for us to think about. So at that time, uh, it was a valley. In the time of Abraham, it was a valley, a rich valley, a rich green valley, lush valley. Uh, but somewhere between the time of Abraham and 400 or so years to Moses, who was writing the book of Genesis, it became a salt sea. And so something must have happened in that 400 or so year period of time that changed the geology uh, to block up the exit uh, of the Jordan River. The Jordan River was no doubt flowing through there. Uh, you can see here on our map. So the Jordan River starts way up at the top of the map and water just comes right out at Dan. And uh, we showed some pictures another week here where, where the water is just coming out of the mountains and the spring water and as well as the rainwater coming down and called, uh, forming the Jordan River, which comes down to the Sea of Galilee and then fills up the Sea of Galilee and then exits the Sea of Galilee and then continues as the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea. And so probably in the time of Abraham, it watered that valley, ran through that valley, and then exited in the Red Sea, now at the bottom of Israel. But uh, somewhere, again, between Abraham and Moses, something caused the water to stop flowing out of the Dead Sea, as it does not today. And maybe so there was maybe an earthquake or something, or an uplift, so that the water was no longer able to go downhill and down to the south and stopped at and formed then the Dead Sea. And called Salt Sea because it's very, very salty, much, much saltier than the ocean and possible to sink and just float, just buoyed up there like you see in the picture there, just floating along. Really a neat experience. You can basically be in six feet, seven feet, eight feet of water, doesn't matter, and you're just bob bobbing up and down, just standing straight up uh, and just out of the water, uh, again, laid down on the back and, and your whole body out of the water, mostly. So it's all filled with salt, and all that salt causes it to be dead. So there is nothing living in it, nothing visibly living in it. There are some very tiny microorganisms, which again is just the amazing thing of God's creation that even in this very high salt content body of water, uh, you, there's still something that lives there, uh, but nothing visible, no plants visible, no uh, in the sea itself, and no, uh, no marine life or uh, sea life at all. And so there it was called the Salt Sea, today it's called the Dead Sea, because again, it's dead, no life in there. Now there's a 
beautiful spiritual analogy for that, that it one time was a lush green valley as it was receiving water and allowing water to exit and leave it. But when it stopped giving water, but just receiving water, it became a dead sea. And everything in God's creation is created to receive and give. Right? The water cycle, the water comes down, waters the earth, and then evaporates back up. And so you have this cycle of giving and receiving and giving, receiving and giving. Right? Uh, that's just how things are designed. We, we breathe out um, carbon dioxide, the plants breathe in the carbon dioxide, the plants give out oxygen, we breathe in oxygen, right? So we're giving and receiving, giving and receiving. Uh, uh, a plant dies, even after the fall, a plant dies, and it rots and becomes fertilizer for new plants to grow. And so again, the cycle that takes place. Uh, we eat and then we, you know, let it go, right? So if you don't, they do that, you know, then you get bottled up and you got problems, right? And so you will die. So the same with, uh, with the lake, it died. It wasn't allowing water out. And the same in our lives, if we receive God's blessings, but don't share it with others, don't give back, then we will become spiritually dead as well. And a lot of things that God has given to us in his scriptures to, to practice have to do with this cycle, to do with this demonstration of unselfishness, of trust, of faith, of giving back to him. So as we read his word and he impresses our minds and hearts and changes our life, we need to tell others. If we just keep it to ourselves, we'll have all this knowledge, but we'll be spiritually dead. Uh, he has blessed us and given us the ability to earn wealth and, and everything that we have, it comes from him. And if we just hold it to ourselves, he tells us that even though 100% of it's his, he'll just claim 10% and we can manage 90% on our own. But if we're not faithful in returning, we keep it to ourselves and again we become spiritually dead. So God designed it so that we will become givers, uh, receivers and givers and have that pattern cycle of life. Another point on this Dead Sea, here he says that these armies, these nine armies that come together, they all join together in the valley of Sidim. And so they're coming out from the cities and into the valley. And we'll see that even clearer in another text here tonight uh, where they leave the cities and the battle is taking place in the valley. And that is uh, important for archeological reasons that uh, many people believe the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are buried under the salt sea, under the Dead Sea. But according to this text and the other one we'll see, the cities were outside of the valley and they left the valley, which makes sense. They're going to be fighting. They'd be fighting out in the fields. They left the cities, came into the valley, and then fought in the valley. So the cities, or the remains of the cities, are outside of the valley. And so that gives us kind of a little background of what was taking place, and then kind of like a movie where it starts at the end, and then it takes you back kind of in a flashback. That's what this uh, chapter is going to do. It gives us this, this uh, scene that these, these, these nine armies, nine cities, nine nation states are, are fighting, and then it's going to take us back a little bit and tell us why. So we go to still same, same chapter, Genesis 14, verse 4. 
Twelve years they served Cheddar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So the Sodom and Gomorrah side of the, those five city nations, they at one point in time had been conquered by Cheddar and became vassal states to him and had to pay tribute to, to him. And so they did so, they served him for 12 years. And in the 13th year, they said, enough of this, we're not doing it anymore. And they stopped payments to him. That helps set the stage for where this account is taking place. Verse five, in the 14th year, Cheddar and the kings who were with him came and attacked a whole bunch of groups, including Rephaim and Zuzim and Horites and Amalites and Amorites and among others, a whole bunch of nations are listed there, which this nation and his uh, three other confederates go and attack. So they're on this war path, attacking one city after another, plundering them. And this is in the 14th year, so you have 12 years ago, he had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and those other cities, made them uh, tributaries to him. And then the 13th year, they rebel, we're not paying anymore. Takes them a year to get angry enough to go and decide to do something about it and raise up his army. And so in the 14th year, he comes through not only to go and attack them, but he's attacking all these other groups, all these other cities, all these other nations, all these other people groups as well. And winning one after another and just attacking and conquering. Verse 8, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and these other kings uh, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Cheddar and his buddies, four kings against five. So you have them again here it's, is where it says they went out, right? So they went out of the cities and joined together in the valley, right? So if they're going out from somewhere and going into somewhere else, they weren't in that place to begin with. So the cities are outside. And again, we see that today when we go to Israel today with our group, we go and visit, I certainly believe it's uh, Sodom or Gomorrah, one of those cities, and we see the ashes there. We see uh, uh, sulfur balls. We take them and just take a, a lighter and burn it. And it just lights on fire. And smell, you can smell the sulfur very strongly and just see it there burn right in front of your face. I go try that with any other pebble, any other rock here. I go, go, go pick up a rock and take a lighter to it and see if it'll burn for you. It won't do so. But there, we find these and it's all just ash. And then we find a pebble and we go and light it up and it burns. It's pretty amazing. And then the strong sulfur, the fire and brimstone. And we'll get more into that in another week when we talk about that uh, event that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But here again, we see that they, it is there today that we can see it. It's not under the water. It is on the shores of the Dead Sea, what was at one time the, the valley of Sidon. Now, um, if I was to guess which one of these kingdoms would win, I would uh, side with the, uh, the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They got five on their side for one thing, as opposed to four. And these other four, they've been battling and battling and battling already. So no doubt they've already had some casualties and, and losses while they might have gained some, you know, lots of plunder and stuff and maybe some more ammunition and maybe more horses and maybe even some of the other arm from the armies they conquered might join them. But nonetheless, they've been out for a while and, uh, and they've, they've got also a lot of training in that and a lot of skills developed in, in fighting. 
but still they must be getting tired. So, and then the Sodom and Gomorrah, they got more to lose. Right? If they lose, they lose everything. They lose their cities, right? So they'd be fighting to the, to the death, you'd think, right? Because you know, they don't want to lose their cities, lose their lives, lose their family. Where these other guys, they're just invading, right? So they're just doing it for plunder. Right? They've already plundered a whole bunch, so they're already pretty rich, right? So uh, their whole army is pretty, feeling pretty full and good. They don't necessarily need Sodom and Gomorrah and these other nations with them. But Sodom and Gomorrah, they're, they're fighting for their lives. So I would think that Sodom and Gomorrah would have a, a, a hand up uh, in this battle, but we'll see how it turns out. Verse 10, the valley of Sodom was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Because before I comment on this slide, I want to go back where it says the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the kings of Gomorrah, and the king of this, and the king of that, and the king of that, and they all joined together in battle. Back then, when they went to war, the king went to war. The king was in the army. The king was there at the head of the army. Today, these guys, they sit in their capitals. They sit under bunkers. They're well protected. And they send all the young people, go over there and die. You know, they just send them out there. I think we'd have less wars if the president and the prime ministers and the kings still had to go out into the battle. You know, they really have what you call skin in the game, you know? But now, they just sit back, these old white-haired guys, never, many of them never even in the army, sending these people out to battle. It's horrible. It's horrible. And right now, there's wars going on. Right? Recently, we went through four years with not a war, I don't think, in the world. And all of a sudden, now there's wars all over the place again. There's been a war taking place for... Uh, over a year now. And I don't really understand it. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. If either side really wanted to win, you'd bomb the capital of the other group. Not just the, the capital, you bomb the house <laughs> where the president is or whatever he is, prime minister. You get him out, you cut off the head of the snake, and the game is over. And both are claiming to have enough power and ammunition and equipment to be able to do that, but neither side's wanting to do that. They're just destroying cities, destroying people's lives, killing people, people dying, soldiers and civilians. So I really don't think about it's about winning anymore. I think there's other motives involved. War makes a lot of money for both sides. Both sides right now are getting lots of money, outside money coming in. They're amassing wealth, not the soldiers, not the civilians, but those sitting in their capital bunkers pocketing a whole lot of money at the expense of other people's lives. And selling ammunition, buying ammunition, and then there's countries that are selling them, giving them money and, and selling them equipment. They're making a whole lot of money as well. So not only the warring nations are profiting from this, but many other nations are profiting from war as well. Also, it's a good way to depopulate parts of the earth. I have no doubt that that's part of the plan, as many have come out and professed that's what they'd like to see happen. War is a horrible, horrible thing. 
or at least in that day, and King David, he went out to war. I don't know when they switched from the kings and the presidents warring to, uh, to them sitting back and letting other people doing the warring for them. I don't know, I think I've seen Napoleon on a horse. I don't know, he might have gone out to the battles, right? So I don't know when the switch is, I'm not a historian, to know when this change took place, but I don't think it's a good thing. I think we need to demand, if you want to go to war, we're not going unless the president goes, and the vice president, and the whole cabinet, and capital, and all everybody, there you guys go. You lead the way, and then we'll follow. Otherwise, no deal. I think we'll see less wars. Anyway, okay, so let's go down and back to the verse. So the valley of Sidon was full of asphalt pits. And here's a picture of uh, the Dead Sea today, and it's receding. The water line is receding unbelievably. How, much, how many feet every year is dropping more and more, receding more and more. It's unbelievable. Uh, there's a road. We drive by this road, and we see a line there, painted there, of back in, I forget what time, uh, they were excavating. They were in a boat, and they drew this line now it's way above the road surface, and the water is way, 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 way down below that. So at one time it was very, very high, and now it's very, very low, uh, because the water coming down from the Jordan River that used to fill it up is now being used for irrigation and other purposes. And the Sea of Galilee has a dam on it. So the water is receding, and you see these now these, these sinkholes developing. And so the water recedes, and then ground just collapsed, without the water keeping it up, and erode, as it goes out, erodes the, the underlayer, and, and you get these massive sinkholes. Well, that might have been what they were experiencing there in that valley. It says that was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there and fled to the mountains. So they might have been falling into these pits that were there, falling into these pits that were developing. And again, we see some of that the remain, or, or the same type of occurrence happening here today, the ground having that uh, ability to form pits. Now, it says those pits were asphalt pits. What do we know about asphalt? Well, we make roads, but what is one of the properties or one of the... Oil. Oil, and what do we know about oil? What does oil do? It burns. It burns. Asphalt burns. It's pits filled with asphalt, so God just throws down some fire and brimstone, and poof, the whole thing burns up. And so now we can see how God was able to burn those cities down to nothing but ashes, because they were all, they were sitting right on a valley of, uh, of asphalt. Yeah. You see how the Bible just all comes together, right? You see these other chapters and connect these chapters together. It all fits together as a real historical account as it really was. Now, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled. What a bunch of cowards. Right? So they're supposed to be defending their, their city-states. There they were. They were servants for the 12 years. They make the decision, we're not paying those taxes anymore. Well, you know, how bold they are. They get a little bit of war, and they go run. They go flee. What happened to go down with the ship? You know, what kind of kings are these? So they flee. They flee off to the mountains. Bunch of wimps. Cheddar and the kings who were with him took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provinces and went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. 
So Cheddar wins the battle. Four kings against five, the four win. And they take all the plunder, including Lot. Here Lot's mentioned as Abraham's brother's son, his nephew, as we've seen in other chapters. And what does it tell us about Lot? Lot who dwelt in Sodom. Now where was Lot last time we saw him in the Bible? You remember? He split, right? So he was with Abraham. Very good. He was with Abraham. They were, came from Ur of the Chaldees, came with Abraham, and they were sharing the land, the, the land together. They had their crop, their, 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 their flocks, and they began to argue uh, because they, their flocks, their herdsmen were arguing. There didn't seem to be enough grassland for them both. At least that's what they felt. And it seemed like Lot entered into that battle. Abraham says, let's not fight. Let's Lot choose which way to go. So for one, at one point, he's there out in the pasture land, going with the grasslands and moving with Abraham right, out in tents. And then after that, where was he? Where did he go? And I remember what it said? It said he pitched his tent near Sodom. So he was still living in a tent, still had his flocks out there in the valley somewhere, near Sodom. Now where does it say is he living? In Sodom. So he went from the, out in the, the fields, near to the suburbs, now he's in the city. Right? So I don't know where his flocks are, maybe he's got the sheep in the bedroom with him, I, I don't know. <laughs> or, or he sold them all and got out of that profession. But we see this gradual shift away from Abraham's lifestyle, closer and closer and closer to the city, the city drawing him in, the greed drawing him in, to where he's living in the city. And we'll see in future chapters that doesn't work out too good for him. And we have to be very, very careful in our own lives to not allow the cities, the world, to draw us in. We're stuck here on this planet for now, and we need to live in this world, but not be part of this world. And as the cities grow and grow in the, around us, right? This area used to be more uh, country before, and it's becoming more, 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 more city all the time. We cannot allow that city mentality, that city lifestyle, that worldliness, the entertainment, the, the greed, the corruption to affect us. We need to be lights in the midst of the cities, as long as God has us individually living in these cities. But uh, maybe a time where God will tell you individually, personally, it's time to get out of the cities and to find more of a country setting where you can meditate more on God and not on the world and the things of this world. But we see the bad cycle that's taking place in Lot's life, where he's drawn in to the city and too many people are drawn into the cities. Go a hundred years ago, the vast majority of the people in this country did not live in cities, and today it's just the opposite. It used to be like 80% outside, and now it's like 80% inside. And it's not been good for morality at all. It's good to be where you see God's handiwork in nature, not man's destruction of this planet. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. So someone in the battle, someone in the war, 
no doubt had known about Abraham somehow. Maybe they heard about him, maybe Abraham's interaction, maybe this person had traveled and came in contact, or maybe this person knew Lot, maybe Lot was able to get a message, go tell my uncle Abraham, and he's over by this tree and near Hebron, and uh, go find him. Uh, so somehow this guy escapes, and he comes, and he tells Abram. Now here Abraham's called the Hebrew. Now the Hebrew is not the definition of a, a race, a nation, an ethnic group. It, it really just means the one who crossed over. And so uh, this person who comes and escapes, he knows of Abraham as the foreigner. He's not from Canaan. He's not from the, the family of Ham. He's from over at Ur. He's from the tribe of the family of Shem. Uh, he's a foreigner. He's an outsider. He's crossed over the Jordan River and come over here. It's just how they re he referred to him. And we look in the Bible at how the word Hebrew is used or how few times it's used. It's only used 35 times in the Bible. And most of those times, it's when the Egyptians are referring to the children of Israel or the Philistines referring to the children of Israel. And so both those groups saw it the same way. They saw them as coming from a foreign land, saw them as intruders in the land, and they came over. They were from the other side. They were from the other side of the Jordan. They were from the east, and they came over. They crossed over, and so referred to them as Hebrews. Again, it's not a... It's not a name of a race or an ethnic group. And there are sometimes in the Bible where God will speak back to the Egyptians, the pharaohs, and refer to the people as the Hebrews, but he's just talking their language. But we see through the Bible, Jews, Jew, Jewish, used over 300 times. It's over 10 times that the term Hebrew is used. And then Israel or Israelites, children of Israel, over 2,000 times that God refers to the people that way. And so people mix up these terms and, and don't know how to use them properly. And there have been times in history where, where the Jewish people have referred to themselves as Hebrews. But, uh, but today, how these terms are used is Hebrew is a reference to the language. The Torah, the Bible written in Hebrew. The language itself is Hebrew. No one refers to people as Hebrew unless they don't understand this. Uh, the people are referred to as Jewish today, modern times. The people are referred to as Jewish. And the nation is the modern nation of Israel, reestablished in 1948. And people who are citizens of that nation are Israeli. That's the terms that's used. So a person can be an Israeli, be a citizen of the nation of Israel, and be also Jewish, also be Jewish. Or a person can be a citizen of the nation of Israel and be Israeli, but not be Jewish. They could be Arab, or they could be Christian, or they could be you know, from anywhere in the world and have their citizenship in Israel for one reason or another. Uh, but still be Israeli, but not Jewish. Then on the other hand, a person could be Jewish, such as myself, lineage back to, to, uh, to the tribes of Israel, and yet not be an Israeli citizen. I don't have an Israeli citizenship. I have a US citizenship. Right? And so a person could be that way or that way. The term Jewish comes from the tribe of Judah. Judah, thus Jew, thus Jewish. Um, because when the nations, the Israel nation split up, largest tribe that remained faithful in Jerusalem to the 
to the Torah were Judah, and so it just became known as the Judah instead of all the different individual tribes. And then when we came back from Babylon, it became part of that Judah, even though they were from other tribes, and just became known as Jewish from Judah, even if they weren't directly from Judah, the tribe of Judah still became known as Judah, thus Jews. And then again, Israel goes back to Jacob, whose name, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And then he, his 12 sons became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's where that term comes from. So that's a direct lineage, direct line to Jewish or Israel, uh, children of Israel coming directly from the race, from the ethnic group, from the people group of Israel, of Judah, and that's where those terms come from. But again, sometimes you'll hear people mix things up. Like, for example, in the Bible, we got this book of Hebrews. The word Hebrew is not used at all in the book of Hebrews. Uh, people refer to uh, Daniel's friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as the Hebrew worthies. The word Hebrew is not used at all in the book of Daniel. <laughs> Uh, so sometimes people will refer to the good Jews in the Bible as Hebrews and the bad Jews in the Bible as Jews. <laughs> uh, again, sometimes it's like an anti-Semitic, kind of a sub, uh, subtle anti-Semitism. I pointed that out to one person who wasn't willing to call him Jewish, wanted to call him Hebrew. And, uh, and he said, well, can I call him uh, a Galilean? Instead, <laughs> he didn't want to call him Jewish, no matter what. He didn't want to call him Jewish. But that's, this is how the terms are used today. So... So this guy, Abraham referred to as a Hebrew, but again, he wasn't a Hebrew as if a race or a nation. He was just an outsider living in Canaan at that time, one who crossed over. Okay, so back to the account, Genesis 14, verse 14. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And we have a picture there of Dan, one of the entrances to Dan. Uh, there are actually two, uh, probably more, but uh, two main ones. Uh, there's this entrance gate, and maybe you can see it. The, the gate is filled in, but you can see the archway right in the, right in the middle of the picture. That archway is the entrance to the city of Dan in Abraham's day. So this would have been the city he would have come to if he, when he came out of Ur and he passed through, he would have passed through this area. If he needed to stop for provisions or anything, he would have stopped in the city. But certainly here in this Bible text, it tells us he pursued those kings, Cheddar and those other kings, all the way up to Dan. And so he chased him up to this city. This is what the city gate looked like. I mean, it didn't look like that. Uh, you know, it looked a little bit better. Maybe it was painted. But, but this is the city gate in Dan from Abraham's day. We're talking about an ancient artifact of 3,000, over 3,500 years ago. Pretty amazing, really pretty amazing. And then there's another gate where the city was rebuilt afterwards, and that one's maybe, oh, only about 2,500 or so years old. <laughs> and we're able to enter in through that gate, it's open and, and, uh, and we take our tours and we go through there, um, through those gates. Different type of stone used there. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing how the Bible comes alive and just really God's truth, the stones crying out. The Bible is accurate as they put the spade in the dirt and find these amazing, amazing 
historical archaeological finds. So here, Lot is referred to as Abram's brother, but we already read that he was his nephew, and we know that. So, so sometimes the Bible uses the term son or grandson, or you know, don't get too caught up in those because a lot of these terms are interchangeable in the Bible. But it was, he was his nephew, he wasn't his brother as we think of term brother. And Abraham takes his 318 trained servants that were born in his household. So he had a lot, right? You know, if he had 318 servants, how many sheep did he have then, right? What do you get these 318 people doing if they're not shepherds and watching over all your sheep? He's got to have thousands of sheep. And if these are 318 trained servants that are ready able to go to war, then how many women and children are there? You know, or older people who are too young to go to war. We've got to have probably over at least over a thousand uh, people. You know, we see these movies and they got one little tent out in the, <laughs> out in the desert there. Uh, he had enough tents for 318 families at least and thousands of flocks. And so he takes them and he also takes with him, as we'll see in another text, uh, three other families, nations, states that come and join in his alliance as well and help him out. Now we see here on this map in our picture here, we see the the, uh, how far it is from where Sodom and Gomorrah is all the way up to Dan and the northern portion of Israel. And Hebron is not, it's down in that area. So Abraham went a far distance. Today it takes us several hours uh, in, uh, in a bus or a couple hours, a few hours in a bus. Uh, but then on foot and or a camel or whatever, it would be quite a trek. Uh, to, to do. And so he chased him down. And when we hear, when we think of this, Abraham heard this, that his brother was taken captive, and he goes and he immediately arms his, takes his armed servants, takes his servants, and goes to battle. Now, as we mentioned, last time Abraham recorded Abraham saw Lot, Lot was arguing with him over the land. Lot was not showing any appreciation for all that Abraham had done for him, taking him under his wing. Lot's father had died. Abraham takes him on, like a father figure, takes him out of her, lets him stay with him. No doubt the flocks that Lot was able to acquire was in a big portion because of Abraham. Abraham gave him protection and fatherly love and guidance. Right, to instruct him in the right way. And then when they had the disagreement, Abraham gave Lot the first choice. And Lot, instead of showing appreciation to the elder statesman, his uncle, and, and the one he owed so much to, and said, no, 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 you choose. You're the, you're the boss here. You take what's best, and I'll make do with what's left. No, instead of doing that, he selfishly took for himself. And Abraham could have been easily hurt by this. I'm sure he was hurt. But he could have taken offense to it. And when he heard this news of Lot being taken captive, he easily could have said, well, I warned him. Wasn't a good idea. It would have been safer if he would have stayed outside of Sodom or in the tents. Then when he saw the nations fighting, he could have fled. He got what he deserved. I feel bad about it. 
Not much I can do about it. I mean, there's, there's, these armies, they already defeated all these other armies, all these other city nations that were trained and ready for battle, had walled cities. What can I do? I'm just a shepherd. I'm not even a, I don't even have any land. I don't even have, any, I don't have anything here. What can I do about it? It's, it's just too bad. It's sad. And I don't even know if he's still alive. They took him captive, this guy's telling me. But he might have died along the way. They might have killed him along the way. They might have sold him along the way. He's all the way up at Dan, probably further by now. Who knows? Many reasons to justify just taking the sad news and leaving it at that. But no. Abraham rises to the occasion without even a, hardly a comma between it. He heard that his brother was taken captive and he arms his city, arms his 318 men and goes out to battle to save him. Shows us the character that Abraham had. That he didn't hold offense. That he forgave. And that he loved Lot. And he wanted Lot to have another opportunity to repent and come back to the, to the Lord. And the others that were with Lot. Maybe all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the character of Abraham. That's a peaceful shepherd, but also in times of need, able to stand up and help those in need and go to battle. At great sacrifice of his own life. He divided, verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night and he, and he and his servants and attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoab, which is north of Damascus. He's risking his life. And the life of his family and the women, he left them by themselves and all the sheep, left it all, goes with all his strongest men up to battle. They could die in battle. Abraham himself could die. Many of his servants could die. And he won't have enough servants to come back with him, even if he does survive, to take care of his flocks. But he goes. And he treks all the way up, and you see the blue line there again, the, how far in the, in the distance it would be. And then they catch up with him in Dan. And then Cheddar and his group, he, they flee, and they flee all the way to Damascus. And you see where Damascus is on the map there. And so then he has to trek further in pursuit of them, and that's what he does. And he catches up with them north of Damascus and wins the battle. Abraham brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother, Lot, and his goods, as well as the women and the people. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the defeat of Cheddar and the kings who were with him. Abraham wins. Goes and delivers Lot frees Lot and the other people and all the spoils and brings them back. And as they're coming back, the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom sticks his head out of the cave he was hiding in. Oh, oh, they won. Oh, here I am. Welcome back. I should have sent them back to the cave. What are you doing? What are you taking credit here? What are you, what are you doing out here? You coward. Who do you think you are? But no, he's back now. King of Sodom. 
Then verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and nor anything that is yours, at least you say, I have made Abraham rich, except what the men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went out with me, Anna, Eshkol, and Mamre. Those are those three other nation families who come and help him out. You read that uh, Abraham had his tent near Mamre. Mamre says it was a city or a nation, city, nation, state, tribe. Uh, and so they go out and they help the other guys. So Abraham had been building friendships and building alliances among the people around him. And they came to his aid when he went to the aid of Lot. And again, so this king of Sodom comes out and says, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Well, where do you get off saying, I, I can take the goods for myself? They're already mine. I already went and won the battle. The spoils belong to the conqueror. I went and conquered. You were hiding up in a hill. The goods are mine. Don't act like you're giving me the goods. <laughs> and that the people are yours. You ran from your people. You fled from your people. You were hiding in your little bunker there. You know, so get out of here. And the people should have said, we don't want you as king anymore. You're fired. <laughs> What good do you have? But these guys have got such nerve. Right? Such chutzpah. Oh, you can keep the stuff and I'll just take the persons. Horrible. But Abraham, he says, no, 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 no. I'm not taking any of it. Not a shoestring, not a sandal strap, nothing that's yours. And Abraham was willing to take from the Pharaoh. And we'll see in another chapter, he takes from another king. There's not necessarily wrong to receive. God impressed Abraham. Abraham had the spiritual discernment to not take anything from this bum. Not to be associated with the corruption that this guy is over. Not with his cowardice, and he's going to say, oh, I made Abraham rich. Abraham was already rich before him. Abraham didn't need him. Didn't need this guy boasting, oh, I made Abraham rich. Abraham saw right through his character and didn't take any of it. The... Uh, character of Abraham, and as he prefigures the Messiah, who left heaven for you and me, at the risk of his life, for those who have rejected him, for those who have betrayed him, for those who haven't appreciated all he's done for him, for them, those who selfishly take for themselves, take the best, steal the tithe, take the credit, give all the glory to themselves. He left heaven to do battle with those who hold us captive. And at the risk of his life. And not just talking three days in a grave life, Everything was on the table in the battle against Satan. Whoever won, won it all. Yeshua was willing to give up his eternity for you and me. If he would have lost, if he would have yielded to temptation, if he would have fallen for the temptation, he would have lost eternity for you and me. 
He put everything out there for you and me. And he came and he met the captives. Great distance, heaven down to this earth. From not robbery to be equal with God, down to the Son of Man. So that he can save you and me, who like Lot, don't deserve it at all. None are good, no, not one of us. And he did it not only for those who would be saved, but for those who, seems like Lot, never accepted it. And the others in Sodom and Gomorrah who never appreciated what Abraham did for them. As Abraham testified, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, is the one who saved you. And they didn't learn the lesson. God was moving upon the hearts and minds of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah to turn from their wicked ways and to follow in the bravery and the example and the faith as manifested in Abraham. God in his great love. For all the world, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Not just the same. Not just to those that confess. Not just to those who accept the forgiveness. But he did it for all. For those who will never accept. He sacrificed himself. And he came and he won and he's victorious. And he defeated Satan and he's chased Satan and he's going to continue to chase Satan until the very end. And then he's going to take us back. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Messiah will rise first. And we'll meet him in the air. And he'll take us to the mansions he's preparing for us in heaven. Just as Abraham went and saved Lot and brought him back with all his plunders, the Lord will come back and take us home and then give us the new heavens and the new earth. And the meek shall inherit the earth. So this story, this picture of the story, is really what it's all about. This battle that's taking place between God and Satan and how God wins. Yes. It's a true account, Abraham's account, but it demonstrates the unselfishness and the love that God manifested towards us, that Yeshua manifested towards us in giving himself for us and fighting for us and winning the battle for us. The question then is, do we, Robert, can you? The question then is, do we appreciate it? Do we take it for granted? Do we like Lot then just remain in the city, remain in our lives, remain in our sins? Or are we willing to Demonstrate our appreciation to our Lord and our God. Surrender all to him. Give him our lives. Give him everything. Surrender all to him. And so in a moment as we pray, whatever portion of the story applies to your life, let God do his work. If maybe... Your life has been like Lot, where you've been gradually, you knew the Lord at one time, you were close with those who knew the Lord at one time, maybe your family, your parents, or 
someone else. But you've gradually shifted. Obviously you're here, so obviously you're still, but gradually you sense God is convicting you. You're drifting away and drifting more and more into the world and the things of this world. The city life, the entertainment, the things of this world, the possessions of this world are grabbing a hold of you and drawing them, drawing you to themselves. Then a moment we pray, I invite you to surrender that, confess it to the Lord, let him break Satan's hold, and let him set you free. Maybe you have been hurt. Maybe someone has not appreciated what you've done for them. Maybe someone has rejected you. Maybe someone has selfishly taken the bigger portion for themselves and hurt you. Like Lot hurt Abraham, disappointed Abraham. I'm sure Abraham benefited from Lot being around. Faithful nephew there that you could trust. All of Lot's men there giving him more protection. So maybe you've been hurt and you felt, feel like you've been tilted and were. And moment when we pray, you can give that over to the Lord. And instead of holding on to the hurt and the pain and the bitterness, rise above it like Abraham did. And demonstrate love in spite of it. And that's not mean you need to get involved in that person's life again and get hurt again. But if called to, be willing to. And in mind and heart, not hold on to those hurt feelings arise above it and in God's grace choose to not be bitter choose to not be angry at the wrong that they did to you and if God calls you to help them out in some way shape or form then listen to the Holy Spirit and don't become codependent and wrapped up in another hurt necessarily but if God calls you, you're willing, be willing to go to battle for them, as Abraham did. If in your interaction with others, you've been tempted to take from this world, for example, remember my in-laws asking me, uh, if we won the lottery and offered you some of that money, they knew I didn't play the lottery or gambling. If we won, they did. So, if we win, you were telling me you wouldn't take the money. I said, no, I wouldn't take the money. <laughs> that was easy because they hadn't won. But <laughs> if they had come to me and said, we just won, and now will you take the money? I don't know. But they say, hypothetically, if we win, <laughs> no, I won't take it. Have you been tempted to take ill-gotten gain? Take from those whose hands are spoiled, rotten, and dirtied. Or you're in that situation now and you want to ask God the wisdom to know how to handle this situation. And sometimes Abraham took from the Pharaoh, but from the king of Sodom he didn't. We need wisdom, we need spiritual discernment. Each situation, each case is unique. So may God give you the wisdom in your business dealings and in your life. Like one person said, you can't get a good deal from a bad person. Right? So you're in the situation of purchase or bargaining or something, may God give you the wisdom to know how to handle the situation.
And so as we pray, some of these situations apply to your life. You want to thank God for leaving heaven to come and save you. Demonstrate that appreciation and living a life of godliness and boldness. Maybe God's impressing your mind that there's someone, some situation in your circle. Maybe you know of some situation where someone's being oppressed. Some group, some individual, and in need. And God's calling you to raise up to the occasion and to help them out. Maybe financially, maybe by volunteering, maybe in some way, shape, or form, getting involved, speaking out, letting others know. Maybe there's some cause that God's calling you to. Maybe for a time, maybe for a life. Maybe one time, maybe continual. Might be different for each one of us. But God's impressing your mind on someone's being oppressed as Lot was being oppressed by this cheddar and God's calling you to help them out. Then a moment we pray, ask God to give you the grace and to show you in what way he wants you to minister to that individual or that people group. And if any of these apply to you, let's pray and ask God to give you wisdom. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful for your example in the life of Abraham. Thank you for embodying him and demonstrating your grace and your love, your boldness and your courage in his life, as well as the grace and forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and kindness and love, even for those who rejected him and hurt him, and made wrong choices. Lord, give us that same type of grace, give us that type of wisdom to know how to handle these people in our lives, the kings of Sodom, the lots, the situations, the disappointments, those that are being oppressed. Give us wisdom to know where to act, when to act, what to say, when to speak up, what to do. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you for leaving heaven. Thank you for fighting for us in our behalf. Thank you for defeating Satan in our behalf. Thank you for your power and your grace. Lord, fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit with appreciation and love and respect towards you in lives committed and devoted to you. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.